Hi, this is Tamsin Green. And this is Dan Abuhoff. <laughs> right. I'm on top of things. The Giants won. With Tamsin and Dan, read Read the paper. paper. Oh, I can see you're going to bring me down to earth. And I'm riled up, Tamsin. I'm I, riled up. I know you are. You're excited because the Giants won. No, that's not it. That's not it. But let, let me pause because you may have some announcements you want to make. It's somebody's birthday or something like that. You got anything like that? Well, it was uh, Noel's birthday, but we might have mentioned that last week. I think we did. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, we got that behind us. All right. I, I'm watching the Padres play the Phils. I know everyone in the Philadelphia area is happy. Phil's going to the World Series. I got nothing against the Phils. I like Zach Wheeler, the pitcher who started. Okay. But to watch the baseball playoffs, and you know, even putting my allegiance to the Mets out of the situation, is kind of it's challenging because you see these teams who can be great, and then they're terrible. And you say, so what the heck went on? What, the theme of the playoffs has been underdogs winning, which means, first of all, you have a team like the Dodgers win 111 games during the regular season. They play the Padres, who have 89 wins. That's a 22-game difference, right? Okay. If they're in the same division, if they were in the same division, one team finished 22 games in front of the other. And when they made a, play, played off in the short series, three out of five, Padres win. Okay. And they asked the Dodgers, who were disconsolate about that. Their whole season goes down El Drano. And they say, well, look, uh, you know, it's a long season. I'm sure we had three-day games in a row that weren't so good in the middle of the season. Nobody cared. Now we're out, right? <laughs> okay, so the Padres the are wrong there. three games. So every they're on the top of the world. This okay. is it. And a lot of their players, you know, have the chance to be, you know, in the spotlight. And especially their manager who hasn't people say haven't been given his due because he's been with a bad team in Oakland and here's his chance. They just lost to the Phillies in the worst managed game in the history of baseball. Ah. Bob Melvin will forever be remembered for not bringing in the right relief pitcher when everyone and his brother knew that Josh Hader should come in to face Bryce Harper. The best reliever, left-hand reliever in baseball doesn't come in to face Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper hits the home run that wins the game for the Phillies. Well, maybe he had a reason. No, there's no possible reason. Bryce Harper, he, Josh Hader hasn't pitched the last four days. He's saving him for next season. No one, it's, it's an unbelievable faux pas. And then to make it worse, they bat in the top of the ninth. He gets first and second on. He's got his 89 hitter up. He doesn't pinch hit for them. And in fact, he has the eight hitter bunt, which you never do with one out man on first and second, because that means there's two out. And man on second and third, and the next guy who... I mean, I'm a better hitter than the next guy. It's Aaron Nola's brother, you know, who bats ninth for the team as a pitcher. Cannot hit a lick. Flies out, game is over. Okay, I'm just venting. I'm sorry. Take your time. Uh, go ahead. Uh, oh, I, I should say, Bruce Suter passed away as a great relief pitcher. I only mention it because when Bruce Suter was a closer, relief pitchers used to pitch two innings. Man, he often pitched two and a third innings. And managers like Bob Melvin didn't get in trouble because they didn't have to make any decisions. They would put in Bruce Suter toward the end of the game. Apparently, that doesn't happen anymore, and now managers like Bob Melvin are exposed. So there you go. Bruce Suter, great relief pitcher. So where does the series stand now? Phillies are going to the World Series. They will play the winner of the Astros and the Yankees, and as you know, Astros are up 3-0, so we think we know where that's going. All right, so this is all very exciting. Well, Phillies are going to be going crazy. If they beat the Astros, they deserve it, because the Astros are loaded. Loaded. The Yankees can't do anything against them. So the Phillies... Have they not gone since like 2008 or 9 or yeah, something? something like that? Yeah. yeah. That's not a long time. Because, well, yeah, but uh, I was on uh, I was on the 
a Philly train. Oh yeah, you told me that. Yeah, it during was a, uh, after a it game, was a crazy. Crowd. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it was, and I think they won that World we all, Series. I almost didn't get home. <laughs> I was going to say they're not going to win this one, but you know, okay. I've, I've been wrong before. Right. Go ahead. You discovered something. Yeah, well, I didn't discover. I, I, last week I was reading the uh, New York Times as one magazine does. section. Yes. Well, as one this does. was last week. This yeah. was a week late. Well, you're brave. So I hope that our listeners are not like on the edge of their seats. No one reads the magazine section. You're on uh, you know, okay. unplowed ground. And uh, I forgot to mention, there was a, a fun little article about a series, mm-hmm. an animated series, a Swiss animated series from the 90s called Pingu. Mm-hmm. And uh, the little article by Gabriel Rome extolling the virtues of this uh, series. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've only seen one episode, uh, so I'm not an expert on it. But it is charming. And part of the charm is yeah. that uh, the penguins speak, but they don't speak any particular language. And uh, you could understand them. Yeah. I mean, you get what they're saying, right? You had no trouble it's like a figuring silent, out what, what was going well, it's on. It's like a silent movie. It's stop action. You had me watch it. And it's, uh, there's gibberish. I mean, well, as you say, well, it's speaking called, no language. It's, there's a name for it. What? Gramalot. Whose name is that? Is that like a proper name? or is it's, that like- it's the name of the... The thing, it's, it's kind of gibberish. Oh, they, they name the gibberish? Yes. Oh, and it goes back to like... Commedia dell'arte. I mean, it goes back way, way, hundreds of years back to performing troops. Um, You know, um, would act things out and just uh, use this gibberish language to to speak. Well, you certainly don't. It's kind of a lost art. And uh, one of the great proponents was the guy who uh, voiced every character in this Italian voice actor, Carlo Bonomi. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just, uh, apparently he just passed away this August at the age of 85. But, uh, it, you know, it was great. I mean, one of the things it captures, and uh, I think the writer here um, says the, uh, you know, aside from it, not having any particular language. This show was a revelation. Pingu did not speak two languages, one to children, another to adults. There was no hierarchy of comprehension, no winking jokes meant to soar over the heads of the adults, over the young heads to keep the adults interested. The language of Pingu is built upon the wisdom of children. The border between sense and nonsense is poorly guarded. There is a raw, ridiculous power in expressing oneself through noise alone. It's a truth adults tend to forget. As we age, we are asked to convert our emotions into a, into more socially acceptable forms of articulation. I just bring this up because we've been noticing lately that when we pick up Hazi from daycare, yeah, and this has become sort of a ritual, and he's very patient with us, you know, as I strap him into his seat and so on, and that at a certain point, we're driving home to his house, and we hit a certain intersection, and usually he squeals. Yeah. He just lets out this squeal of delight. Right. And that's this kind of articulation. Oh, well, he has almost no words, yeah. but he is kind of speaking uh, frequently nonetheless. And so Pingu kind of 
captures this. Well, the way that the, the child character in Pingu uh, operates, and, and I guess the child character is named Pingu, or am I wrong about it? I have no idea. Okay. I don't know that much about He's it. very child. He, he moves exactly like Hasi. He might as well be Hasi. I mean, uh, so... Well, then the father penguin actually is a lot like you. To be you honest, think so? you yes, think so? yes, good looking, much more like you than uh, like his father, you know. So uh, oh, how, uh, let me put Pingu. it this way: P I N G U. I will say something which is somewhat related. It's on, it's on YouTube, but you can right. see it everywhere. I, We've only watched the first episode, and it's a great one because he has to eat his spinach. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one point though: dialogue can be overrated. You know, how many times are we watching like one of these British um, drama series? You know, detective series. And sometimes they have pretty thick British accents, and we don't get half the dialogue, or or or, or even the one the, the Scottish series, you know, Outlander. A lot of we have no idea what they're talking it, about. But you don't need it. You can get it. You can figure it out. You know, it's, it works out. It might have all been done in the original Gaelic. You know. Uh, yes, exactly right. Well, look, it's uh, which takes us to uh, Ray Fiennes, who uh, is a little bit the opposite, because you love to hear. I love to hear Ray Fiennes speak. He's he's. A wonderful actor, and uh, he he does wonderful delivery of dialogue, and it's all very portentous, and and uh, he can do a range of characters, and he's in the news because he's playing uh, Robert Moses in a play at Hudson Yards, a new uh, performing space they have there. It's called Straight Line Crazy, and strangely enough, it's a play that came from Great Britain. Why they're doing a show about Robert Moses in Great Britain, I don't know. But in any event, it has now found its way to New York, where it seems a somewhat more natural home. But it's uh, it's just a very interesting article about Ray Fiennes, and because he's one of those rare actors, I shouldn't say this, but I'll say it, who's an interesting person. He's a darn interesting person. Listen, we don't look for actors to be interesting. We don't have okay? to. Okay, as long as they're good actors, that's fine. Yes, well, look. but it, but we, it's it's not. It's not fun to read about them when they're not interesting. I'll well, say that. This is a great article. Well, this is an interesting article. Right. Well, first of all, I mean... And it's by Maureen Dowd. It's Maureen Dowd makes it that much more interesting. So, yeah. And she's carried away with it. I mean, she just says it. She's, just, you know, she's always been a huge fan. But to start with, with the play and talking about Robert Moses, you know, Robert Moses is, as we all know, the great urban planner, which people now, in retrospect... Love to hate. Love to hate. In revisionist history, yes. if you would ask this question 35 years ago, not so much. But uh, He mowed down New York. Mowed down New York. And put up ugly highways. Exactly. Some people say that. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's hard to... Uh, you can take both sides. But he oversaw the building of Lincoln Center. And that has both features you mentioned. He had to mow down a neighborhood, but he had Lincoln Center. The New York Coliseum, Shea Stadium, and, of course, Jones Beach. Westside Highway. Yeah, what's that? Oh. Cross Bronx Expressway. There are some very bad things in there and very good things in there. And yeah. even in the article, he quotes, he, he says he will meet people who say, you know, uh, but he gave us Jones Beach. Right. My parents love that. Right. So Which is our know. situation. We love right. Jones Beach. He, he says exactly that. And, you know, so people are conflicted. And, and you get the feeling that uh, that when, we're, and when the play starts, and this is the way Dowd writes it up, is that uh, the the audience is, is oriented against uh, Moses. And I don't know how the play proceeds so much, but Ray Fiennes clearly is not oriented against Moses. He sees him as a complex character. Yes, complex. You right. can be... He has a good quote there about being... You can be bad and good at the same time or yeah. something. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, be... and that's exactly right. But, uh, you know, um, he says he rejects the binary view. 
noting geniuses can be good and bad at the same time. That's exactly what you're saying. I mean, and and then, uh, so it sounds interesting. Of course, we can't get tickets. It's sold out. So that's why we're talking about it now. But Ray finds... It's at a very small theater. Yeah. In the confines of Hudson Yards yeah, or something. Right. Uh, which, of course, we don't know because it's brand new. Um so, uh, but it, also a lot of the articles just about Ray Fiennes and what he's like. Uh, and you'll be interesting to know that his two most favorite things are Shakespeare and swimming. He loves swimming. Okay. And he does a lot of great thinking uh, swimming. I mean, well, I, they mentioned in there that Robert Moses did too. Oh, I didn't catch that. Actually. Yeah, not unlike Robert Moses, he oh, does really? his best thinking when he's swimming. Or All right, so, so like there that. you go. Uh, yeah. And uh, they have a quote here from, uh, you know, someone who observes that, uh, oh, David here in the playwright. He says, uh, being a leading actor or the class, uh, on the classical stage and at the same time a great film star is an almost impossible double. Laurence Olivier, Judy Dench, and Ray Fiennes. And that's it, according to David here. And uh, maybe you can add more. Anyway, it's an interesting article. I recommend yeah, well, well, reading it. Done. You I'm have more done. things we, to say? Yeah, I'm okay, going to go what? on and on. You know, we look, we saw him in a bigger splash, which I thought he was fantastic in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, he's got many other credits, Schindler's List, etc., etc. But what's interesting, they talk about him as a child. And uh, he said, uh, the, inter- the interview with siblings, uh, Martha Fines, uh, Joseph Fines, who's the actor, um, and uh, apparently when they when he's very young, he would go to birthday parties, and uh, he'd go straight up to the mom and say, "Do you have a puzzle I can do?" <laughs> <laughs> Didn't want to join with the other children, <laughs> and you can sort of see that. And uh, oh, they go on about Harry Potter. You're right. I'm not going to get lost in the details here, but she does one funny, interesting thing at the end. She says to him, I'd like to ask you the questions um, that uh, you were asked in The English Patient by Kristen Scott Thomason during an amorous bath scene. Uh, when were you most happy? When were you least happy? And then she says, uh, and what do you love? And he says, swimming in Shakespeare. Uh, and what do you hate is the last question. And his answer is, I try not to hate anything, but I think anything that feels like there's a phoniness, phoniness, excuse me, which is funny. Because I'm in the business of pretending. So there you go. Anyway, hard not to like Ray Fiennes. And there was one other thing I had that is film related, if I can actually find it. And it just is apropos of nothing. You know, the way they do the film reviews now, they have have sort of a separate section with reviews of small films. And talk about small films. There's an article here about a film called The Pez Outlaw. Okay. All right. Pez as in the... The candy. Yeah. And uh, it's about a guy named uh, Steve Glue, uh, who's obsessed with breakfast cereals, Tom Clancy novels, and Pez candy dispensers, which he began collecting and selling in the 1980s. The film is about his clandestine efforts to smuggle rare European dispensers into into the United States, which made him a kind of black market folk hero among serious Pez collectors. <laughs> I wouldn't all. even know that that would be smuggling. Well, you don't have to know. What I don't know was who thought that we're making a film about this. That was, well, the How whole does thing, that even work? They like the film. I could smuggle those for them. No one ever looks in my luggage. 
It, and it's unbelievable that the Pez people are against it. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, you know, he, he, there's some real opposition to this. So they've got, you know... Why uh, can't they be smuggled? Are they national I, treasures I, There's something? no rhyme or reason to this entire thing. I don't know why he wants to do it. I don't know why people want to stop him from doing it. I don't know why anybody cares. And yet, and yet, and yet. So I don't, I, I don't think I have a full one. understanding of black markets. <laughs> I think, but we both know Pez dispensers pretty darn well. And, uh, no, I don't. I, I, I know what they I, are. I, I, I was never a um, There's a couple of Pez, Pez person. Yet, huh? really. You don't have to be a Pez person. You get the idea. You tilt back the head, the mouth opens, the chin right. goes up, okay. whatever it is. Isn't it, there, there, there's some place we go that we go by the Pez factory or something like that, which is nearby. Oh, yeah. yeah. Chips. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chips where there's we stop. The breakfast we're place the breakfast in Connecticut. Place. Yeah. Well, we'll have to stop it's for a huge a tour. Pez factory. <laughs> And load up on some of the rare. <laughs> they probably are. Oh, man. We're missing our opportunity. Yes. Okay. So you had an article about... I don't know. There's another, you know... Skip it. You don't it's like a, it's a legal thing. It, well, I got... A, there's a big new show of Edward Hopper yes. at the Whitney. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, so, you know, we should go see that. I'm sure it's uh, wonderful. Yeah. Sounds good. Who doesn't like Edward Hopper? Yeah, I know, you probably don't. Edward <laughs> right? Hopper, he did, uh, yeah. It was his The Diner thing? Is that yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. The one, and, um... What's the name of that one? Something no, in Skylight Diner or something. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, um... I always think of the the sort of... Parodies of Tom Waits, yeah. you know, meme of it, basically. Yeah. Nighthawks at the Diner. Nighthawks but anyway... Um, so anyway, uh, the big story about it. in the process of, uh, so the, um, Whitney owns like a zillion hoppers, yeah, a zillion hoppers. Okay. Um, and when Hopper died, uh, his, um, widow left all his art to the Whitney, more than 3000 works when she died in 1968 which um, the Whitney at that time was hardly starving for more with um, hoppers. The inheritance roughly doubled the size of the museum's collection. Okay. Not just of harp hoppers. But of all paintings. But of all paintings. Well, that's crazy. Okay. Uh, so it was a huge gift. But, but the funny thing is that... Um, um, this current exhibition, of course, benefits from all those uh, hoppers, but also benefits from another big gift, 4,000 items of hopper memorabilia donated to the museum several years ago by the family of a Baptist minister from Hopper's hometown, Nyack, New York. Arthur R. Sanborn, the Reverend Arthur R. Sanborn, lived a few doors away from Hopper's childhood home after caring for his elderly sister and later um, Hopper's widow. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, he retrieved from the Nyack home huge collection of letters, photos, clippings, notebooks. Okay. So everybody's thankful for that. I mean, th those things might've been just tossed out, yeah. thrown away. Um, you know, he kind of fought his way into buying the contents of the house. But the weird thing is that he also ended up with hundreds of Hopper artworks. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear how. He says they were gifts 
from uh, Jacqueline the wife, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you know a an art historian who was you know who used to work uh, for the Whitney said um, when, when she did the research, there's you know very little paper trail. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little record of any of these things being given to him, and the the widow generally kept pretty good records. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit mm-hmm. odd. So that's a big question: whether he uh, made off, whether he just helped himself mm-hmm. occasionally to art. But he ended up giving them to the museum. No. Oh no. No. He sold these. He he gave all the memorabilia. Ah, oh, but he didn't but he paintings. sold at auction oh, in the seventies uh, a number of the all right. works. Okay. Um, and you know, and it gets very uh, tangled. The mm-hmm. Whitney says they've looked into it. It's not really, you know, they they can't find any basis for the allegations. But, uh, you know, and the the son of the reverend says, you know, my father said these were gifts. This painting hung for years over our, um, you know, dining table, etc. So it's just, it's all kind of um, sketchy. And and then there are many other characters. There's the handyman who says, yeah, they, you know, they would frequently tell me just to get rid of those old paintings. So, you know, it wasn't anything... If he did take some of them, it wasn't as if maybe the Hoppers really associated much value with mm-hmm. them. Um, but they're worth something now, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's questionable, but I think it comes back to shows opening at the Whitney. And uh, this brings in a lot of publicity. Yeah. Brought a us. scandalous story Scandal- like this. It is a scandalous story. So talk about scandalous. There's an article in the Times says called... Patients and doctors on a first-name basis. Who is addressed as doctor? It may depend on the person's gender, degree, and specialty. Now, it's pretty much a non-article because when they say it may depend on the person's gender, degree, and specialty, they're just riffing. They don't really know. I mean, they they say, well, it could be this, could be that, could be this, could be that. And they have some uh, kind of, I don't know, uh, inconclusive statistics which suggest that... uh, uh, some people might be more likely to call a woman doctor by her first name patients. The question is, do patients refer to their doctors by their first names or do they call them doctor? Dr. Blank, Dr. Smith. Do they Smith. converse with their doctor and say, oh, Joe, I don't you yeah. know, I have this pain over right. here. And, uh, you know, the article kind of goes nowhere most of the time. But it raises an interesting subject because I didn't realize it's an issue. They do say at some point that some doctors or many doctors... Uh, don't uh, enjoy the real-world tint toward informality. Uh, that up until 25, 30 years ago, everyone would always refer to a doctor, according to this article, as Dr. So-and-so. And it's a survey in 2000 that showed there's an increased use of informality and that 61% of doctors were annoyed when patients addressed them by their first name. 61%. So the question is, do you refer to your doctor or doctors or any doctors by their first name? Well, I have never called my dentist Dennis. Yeah. But, I mean, I you know, I think of him as Dr. White. And uh, I do, um, but it, it's rare, you know, that it comes up in conversation. You know, it's not well, like how, I bump how, into him. How about 
And I say, hey, Dennis, you know. How about, uh, but when you're sitting, first of all, it's tough to Dennis, because Dennis got his fingers in your mouth. So that, that, that all doesn't There's a lot come. of conversation. Right. But, but, uh, but, that, but that I know for sure. Um, other doctors, um, no, I, I, I never had a reason to call, you know, I don't even say. You don't use their name at all. No, I don't, okay. I don't find myself using their name. Yeah, I think but I understand that attitude, that sort of um, patronizing doctor-patient uh, posturing that goes on yeah. where they want to be perceived as Dr. So-and-so yeah. and you are just Tamsin. Well, I, I will say, you know? yeah. I mean, they do say, which is all, always pissed me off. I, I think, it, look, my experience, I don't go to doctors a lot, but I have had doctors and, um, and the doctors I've had, or I'm thinking of one in particular, refers to me, you know, we had re, reason to discuss things and he would refer to me by my first name, and I mm-hmm. would use his first name. Yeah. And in retrospect, I guess reading this article, it makes me think that perhaps that he might have bristled at that. I don't know. But having said that, there's, I, I absolutely should be referring to it by his first name. And the reason is, perhaps for the reason that he would bristle, because the notion is that, that the doctor is the expert, and you're just sitting there and you take what he has to say from on high, is ridiculous. Yes. I mean, yes. the doctor is the expert in medical information. You're the expert on you. And, and you have to put the two together. So yeah. it's sort of a joint activity. You're working as a team. So uh, I re- would always refer to the doctor first. And something has to do with age. We're the same age. Yeah. Right? And if he was 40 years older than me, it would be different, perhaps. But uh, No, I used to be very intimidated by doctors. Is that right? And, and then I just thought... Yeah, and and I also I just thought it was odd that they do seem to talk down to you. Oh yeah, you know, as if you should just uh, take whatever they say as gospel. Yeah. Okay, and I, I'm thinking like that's just an odd way to put it. I yeah. mean, we're we're both smart people. Right. I probably have more advanced degrees than he does. Yeah. Why can't we discuss this? rationally yeah. as opposed to otherwise so well it just seems to me it's better so I, I think uh, yeah so i think um i think possibly uh both both sides of the conversation using on a first name basis would make for a more yeah. even relationship sure. yeah. you know I, and I, I don't think that would diminish my respect for his or her knowledge mm-hmm. it's just that um do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but look, I, yeah. it's important. I, mean, I can remember myself say, saying to my doctor, you know, George, I don't think that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we talk about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, you have to participate in that way. And uh, I think dealing with the back and forth on a first name basis only facilitates that process. Right. So uh, it, and I think I the was doctors startled. worry that, uh, you know, <laughs> that you're, you're too ignorant to um, well, have an opinion. Sadly, I, I respond a little bit to the poll which suggests that doctors don't like to be called by their first name because it feeds into some of my experience with this doctor and others that they also don't want you to talk back, that they also just want you to sort of absorb what they're saying and move on and implement it, which has never been my attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, I haven't gotten along with several doctors, honestly, when I think about it. But that's the, to me, that's the way you got to be. You, you can't sit there and just say, okay, whatever you say, I'm doing it. Because when you think about it, when you go uh, to get your car repaired, yeah, you know, and you have, you know, the car repair guy is the expert. Yeah. And yet we don't 
talk no, to no, him no, like no. Mr. Smith. No, but I'm much more deferential to the car expert. Exactly. Than the doctor. Exactly. They are an expert. They right. are the but expert. But the reason is I don't know anything about cars. Right. I do know about me. So. Uh, yeah, but the doctor's point of view is you don't know anything about medicine. Well, and yet, uh, this is the other half of the equation. So, uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, I can see doctors put off by that, and I can see myself not caring about it. So, uh, <laughs> so I do it something about museum stuff, even beyond. Well, I just said you, you know, just go to the Whitney, yeah, and see the Hoppers. It, uh, you know, a big section on fine arts and exhibitions yeah. in the Times, and um, just a couple of the other things uh, the Times brought up are, um, oh, Alex Katz at the Guggenheim. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, no, but no. Uh, he's an interesting guy. He's now in his late 90s, still painting up a storm, giant canvases. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty uh, sort of stylistic, but still, um, you know, figurative. Right. He did many, many uh, portraits of his wife mm-hmm. and family. And uh, so that I'm sure would be fun to see in the Guggenheim. That seems like a good display. It also uh, goes kind of crazy about the Detroit Institute of Arts. Yeah. Saying it's one of the finest museums in America. And uh, mentions it's having a, a Van Gogh show. Uh-huh. The museum, the Detroit Museum Institute, was the first museum in America to purchase a Van Gogh. Oh, and that okay. was in 1922. Sure, they got a good deal. Uh, and uh, so they at the forefront. And you know what else is there? The the great um, right. Diego the murals. Rivera yeah. uh, murals of uh, Detroit industry. Right. And you remember uh, Dixon went there a few years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, just went crazy mm-hmm. over the institute. It has always it has weathered some real storms. So is, that, is that reason enough for us to go to Detroit or not? It might be. Yeah. I mean, there are other things to do in Detroit, right. aren't there? I don't know. And, and uh, in fact, in the uh, in the blurb about it, they say um, the uh, the murals are their Sistine Chapel. Sure. Anybody who goes to Detroit goes to see the murals. Sure. And they're big. <laughs> they have, they have huh. space to show them. Um, okay. So that's just a couple of ideas. So, all right. So finally, we have a couple of obituaries. Not, you know, yes and no. The Times has this uh, I don't know. They write columns once in a while in the obituary section. Uh, I don't know. Overlooked deaths. And I guess when they started doing it, they say, oh, gee, this person died six months ago. We missed it. Or this person died a year ago. Now I guess they're at the point they're saying, we're going to write about anybody. You no, know. no, no. It wasn't just six months. But it's it's it, overlooked no more. It's it, it's just... That's uh, fine. They can do what they want. People, it's for their- whatever reason, many of them were women or many of them were... Or, or even... Uh, people of color who were, who seemed to have uh, achievements yeah. that were worthy of note. Right, that's the premise. Okay, I, but but that's that, not. That, yeah. And yet the Times ignored them, and now they're going back and paying some attention. I understand, except I'm reading this article. I can't even tell when these people died. So it's a not so obituary oriented. It's a column about these people. That's perfectly fine. All right, fine. fine. Totally fine. And why are you mentioning it if you're so dismissive? Well, I'm not dismissive. It's just it's it's just an odd. Just write a column about it. Don't call it an obituary. Uh, but in any event, it's um, it's about the people behind the famous uh, Myers Briggs 
personality test. Now, the Myers-Briggs personality test is one which for a certain time was ubiquitous in uh, a lot of corporate practice. A lot of corporations used to use it uh, to see if people were suited for jobs, perhaps even suited for promotions. And uh, it would try to determine, you know, the way it was structured, there's determination as to uh, whether a person is an introvert, an introvert or an extrovert, uh, how a person perceives the world through sensing or through intuition, how an individual makes, individual makes decisions, either in a thinking or a feeling manner, uh, and how a person deals with the outside world by judging or perceiving. These were the indices that are uh, the structure of the test. Uh, and what's interesting about it is I never thought for a moment about who Myers and Briggs were. And it turns out that Myers and Briggs are a daughter and a mother. Uh, Isabel Briggs Myers had the idea for the test. She had volunteered as an aircraft spotter during World War II for the Civil Air Patrol and as a nurse. And she thought about the importance of matching the right people with the right jobs. So she was thinking hard about how one might go about that. And she sensed the need for something that she called a people-sorting instrument and wrote to the one person she knew would, would instantly understand, and that was her mother, Catherine Cook Briggs, who was a self-educated magazine writer with a passion for the ideas of Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist and a mentee of Sigmund Freud. And these two sat down and came up with the test, the Meyer-Briggs test. And as the Times uh, points out, I'm just reading it here, this paragraph, the enduring popularity of the Meyer-Briggs test is rooted not in, not in science, but in the two women's ingenuity, commercial instincts, and timing. Um, it is no real scientific uh, basis basis for it. But they sold it. Like but they crazy. sold it. They sold it extremely effectively. And they talk about some other tests. And is it built. was it effective, or do we even know? Uh, you can't. It's very hard to test whether it was effective. Um, it is um, now largely discredited. Mm-hmm. People don't use it anymore. It's become almost controversial because people say that it, uh, it's racist in, in the results that it yields. Um, but uh, it clearly um, is based not on very much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, so you're here to say this, this, this column is called Overlooked. And you're just basically saying that was okay, we... We no, should overlook it. No, no, no. It clearly captured the imagination of, of, okay. a, of a lot of people. It, it was a thing. It was a big thing. Okay. But right? it's a thing no more. But it's a thing no more. But okay. it's, I'm totally stunned by this. I mean, I just assumed, perhaps you did too, that there was a lot of solid science behind all this. And it turns out, no. It's baloney from baloneyville. It's baloney from baloneyville. Yeah. Uh, they said the reason, one of the reasons, and they quote one of them, I won't go into detail, it was sold and became popular because, well, there are other tests on the market that they were both, they were based more on a binary positive negative approach. This mm-hmm. person has this quality, this other person doesn't. This yeah. person has okay. this personal line. They said, no, no, it was all good news with the test. Mm-hmm. Whatever they found about it, it was a feature. 
It wasn't a bug. <laughs> right. And you, you, you were what you were. So it was like a horoscope. It was like, uh, ah, yeah. that's good. I'm like this. That's cool. And then I think about it. I am kind of like that. And uh, that's a good thing to be. Well, I guess it works out. You can just say, all right, it uh, turns out you're an introvert and we're looking for an extrovert. So uh, you don't get the job. That could, no well, harm, no foul. They were, uh, that could be. That, that could be that that right. happened. Uh, so... I listen, I, I, all I know about them so is... So do you have a real them. obituary for me? Well, this is... Yeah, not to go into great detail. Dan Wyden uh, passed away. So he was a great advertising figure. And he came up with certain slogans. Uh, but he was most famous for uh, Nike. I mean, he he opened a shop in Portland. Uh, and, you know, he became friendly with Phil Knight, who was the Nike founder. And Nike, uh, Phil Knight was famous for saying that he doesn't believe in advertising. Uh, and yet, uh, Wyden's experience with his shop with uh, Nike proved just the opposite. The importance of the effectiveness of advertising. And in particular, his slogan, I mean, he had different ads for them. He had the Bo Jackson stuff, and you remember those ads. He's a very memorable ads for them. Mm-hmm. But the most memorable was, uh, well, yeah, even the Miles stuff with um, Spike Lee. Was mm-hmm. his, but okay. but the most memorable was the slogan that became Nike's slogan, which was "Just Do It," mm-hmm. and that tagline is credited for really, uh, you know, uh, very much uh, being part of the popularity of Nike. But here's the weird thing about it, right? And it's a little off-putting to some degree. Uh, here's how they came up with "Just Do It." The phrase was inspired, according to Mr. Wyden by the Utah spree killer Gary Gilmore, you remember, maybe remember that name, whose last words before he was killed by a firing squad in 1977 were, quote, let's do it. And when he heard Gary Gilmore say, let's do it, something clicked and he said, hey, let's have a slogan uh, for Nike like that, you know? Just do it. Okay. All right. Is that weird uh, or what? Yeah, I don't know where to go from there. Then. I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, things happen in a weird way. Okay. That's it for winding this up. Uh, I'm buying you dinner, right? Is that what we decided? I certainly hope so. Yeah. Dinner and a drink, maybe. Do you have money on the Phillies? No, I don't have money on any of this. I, it, it's just perplexing to me, but I'll get over it. I'm not a Padre fan. Okay. Uh, All right. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper, and we'll be back.